0: Hey guys, Cable here, and this week's podcast is brought to you by Scoped Vision. Y'all probably know of Phone Scope by now, right? It's that technology that allows you to hook up an adapter to your cell phone and then place that on your spotting scope or binos. And you can record what you're seeing through your optic. Well, Scoped Vision is the evolution of that technology, and now you can actually record your hunt through your rifle scope. You've got an adapter, it attaches to your scope, And you record right there with your cell phone. It's awesome. It's Scoped Vision. You can find it at phonescope.com.
1: Indians of long ago Followed after Buffalo And they found a use for every part Everything except his heart and I have wondered like
0: those birds. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Cable to Smith, Welcome everybody into the, oh, the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Go. That is Pierce Pettis, Chase the Buffalo. Goes back to my high school days. I actually, saw Pierce Pettis play that uh, song live at my church growing up. And uh, most people don't even know who the heck Pierce Pettis is, but one hell of a songwriter. And uh, that one definitely stuck with me. Anyway, I am certainly glad that you guys and gals are here. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, Also appreciate our title sponsor, Dallas Safari Club, as well as Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. And we have got a great show lined up for you today. And then it'll be time to hit the turkey woods one last time Hopefully get that gobbler on the ground. It's been a frustrating season for me personally. First time in recent memory that I actually haven't killed a bird. And uh, and while I haven't hunted as much as some, I've put in, I think, seven or eight days in the field. So generally speaking, that's uh, enough time for me to get two or three tags punched. This year, not the case. But that's the way hunting goes. Uh, so anyway, hope you all have had a great turkey season. Hope the crappie have been biting for you. Uh, I know that the largemouth are still spawning in some areas, even in Texas, as far south as uh, as Texas, north Texas. My dad caught an 8.23 the other day right up on the bank, and she was full of eggs. So, old man taught me everything I know about fishing, but he's still got to get to 10.23 <laughs> if he wants to beat my personal best. Uh, so, uh, one of those fun uh, bragging right deals you, you have with your old man. We've certainly... Got that going on in the Smith family. We've got a great show lined up for you today, so you know what to do by now. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old Stanley Thermos, the one that's still got mud caked on it from duck seasons past, and uh, pull up a stool a little closer to the campfire here because we are ready to rock and roll. And off the top, we are going to talk some waterfowling with Ducks Unlimited Chief Biologist Tom Mormon. Specifically, we're not really going to talk about how to kill birds today. Uh, We're going to get into one of the most interesting reproductive tactics that I've seen a bird use. And this is uh, the barnacle goose, which is native to Greenland and parts of Europe. Uh, But I I saw this special on this this animal on uh, Nat Geo, the show Hostile Planet. And uh, anyway... This thing nests on cliff faces that are 400 feet high. The goslings cannot fly, mind you, when they are born, and they only have one day to get to the grass that they need to start feeding. So what happens? Well, we are going to discuss it next, but it is uh, it, it's terrifying, to be honest with you. Uh, let's just say cliff diving comes into play. Uh, also, though, this is relevant in North America, because it helped save one of our own goose species from extinction. Uh, So, fascinating stuff regarding these geese and uh, the ways that they have adapted to survive. Of course, we'll also mix in some other waterfowling discussion uh, as well. Who knows? Hawaiian duck hunting? Hmm? Blue-winged teal? Yeah. Might get into that stuff as well. And then uh, after that... We'll be joined by Sportsman's Alliance VP of Communications, Brian Lynn. Uh, We've talked about it a little bit on the show in recent weeks about this very targeted approach that is sweeping across state legislatures. It's being facilitated by anti-hunting groups, and we're seeing all this legislation that is trying to ban hunting, trapping, a predator calling contest, a dog tethering bills. I mean, anything that could possibly hurt hunting, we are seeing, and it is not just in specific places. This is a nationwide effort being made by the anti-hunting faction. So we'll get into some of those specific pieces of legislation that really have drawn my ire. Uh, Also, what about... The Sportsman's Alliance, their history, their function, what is their purpose? What is their goal? What do they do? If you're not familiar with them, you will be by the end of the show. They are doing great things to protect hunters' rights. There's no doubt about that. I don't know how they keep tabs on 50 different state legislatures plus all of the national uh, anti-hunting stuff as well. It's uh, truly, it's a lot to take on. Uh, So I'll ask Brian how they they facilitate managing that because it's... uh, Got to be overwhelming, to be honest with you. Uh, So that's what's going to be on the docket for today. We're going to spend quite a bit of time with Brian here coming up in just a little bit. A couple other things to mention. Don't forget that Guns and Guitars 5 is taking place at Coons Canyon Ranch June 27th through the 30th, and we still have spots for two more folks who want to come be a part of this weekend, Uh, Mark David Manders and Max Stalling. Also, Heather Stalling on the fiddle will be providing the nightly uh, concerts. It's an intimate setting, and uh, well, there's a, a little bit of beer and wine, maybe liquor consumed. I'm not going to lie about that. There's a pila pool if you get hot during the day, and of course, there is axis or black buck hunting if you're so inclined uh, and you want to sit in a blind and have a chance to take a nice trophy. You can do that as well. Two spots left. We've got 11 filled, and we have room for 13 guests, so... Shoot me an email, LoneStarOutdoorShow at gmail.com if you're interested. And on that note, a quick giveaway today. I've got a Coons Canyon Ranch Yeti tumbler and Coons Canyon Ranch cap, which we will give away. Let's make everybody eligible. All you have to do to throw your hat in the ring for the Coons Canyon Ranch prize pack is email me the word. Let's do uh, Let's do Black Buck today. We haven't done Black Buck in a while. Email the word Black Buck to Lone Star Show at gmail.com and we'll get you entered into today's giveaway. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're joined by Ducks Limited's chief scientist, Maybe biologist, right. and our good friend, Tom Mormon joins Maybe us next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show.
1: Maybe it's not enough.
0: Are you tired of waking up at 2 a.m. to fight public land skybusters? Cable here for Three Crow Outfitters and their new North Texas Duck Club, which consists of over 3,000 acres and 40 water bodies throughout Ellis and Navarro Counties. Three Curl does the planting, provides metal blinds, decoys and posts a weekly scouting report. All you and your buddies do is reserve the property you want and show up to hunt. This opportunity is limited to 10 four-person memberships, so for the waterfowling experience of your lifetime, go to threecurl.com or call 214-641-8097 today.
2: Howdy, folks. I'm Lee Hoffbear for Bears Outdoor Superstore
3: in Gulfway, Texas.
1: I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Bears once again, the number one Polaris dealer in Texas.
0: Pike County, Illinois, and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.GoldenTriangleWhitetail.com today.
1: Don't fight it.
0: That's a family revival if it don't kill you, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. And thanks to you guys and gals for being here today. I do appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, We're about to get into one of the most fascinating reproductive survival methods that I've seen from an animal in some time, and I'm talking about the barnacle goose, which is not native to North America, uh, more like Greenland and uh, parts of Europe, but but I think you guys are going to like this discussion, uh, because the will to survive, the will to evolve, whether you believe in creation or evolution, uh, make no mistake about it, animals do evolve, and this goose species has has evolved in some crazy nesting habits, um, which has actually secured its long-term survival, and it's doing quite well. Um, But first, before we get into that, this segment brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. Love to invite you to get plugged in with this great group of folks who are dedicated to hunter's rights, hunter advocacy, and of course, conservation. For more info, check us out at biggame.org. Okay. Well, let's bring on our first guest. He is a I'd say a I wouldn't say a long-time friend of the show, but he's been on a couple times here in recent memory. And it's always great talking waterfowl with Ducks Unlimited's chief biologist, Tom Mormon. Thanks for being here, Tom.
2: Thanks, Cable. Great to be on again. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Absolutely, brother. So, uh, tell me this, what is DU's
3: chief biologist up to this time of year?
2: Man, my job is, uh, I guess I'm a jack of many trades. Uh, In addition to several meetings uh, coming up here, we got our national convention coming up in Hawaii, so I'm busy getting ready for that with a couple of presentations. Uh, We're wrapping up, I hope, uh, our international conservation plan revision. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the plan that sort of guides what we do, where we do it, across the continent, uh, Canada, U.S., and Mexico. So, we'll be putting the final paint job on that one here shortly. And so, those are the kinds of things that I'm up to at the moment. Okay, right on.
3: So, staying busy and about to head off to Hawaii. That's that's cool. I didn't, uh, I don't imagine that DU's ever had their convention there.
2: They have, it's been a long time. Uh, They do one, I don't know, every 15 or 20 years, they swing out to Hawaii. (laughs) So,. Uh, move around the, the entire country, including Hawaii.
3: What ducks are there to uh, to hunt in Hawaii, out of curiosity?
2: Uh, you know, there's not a lot of... Uh, all the native waterfowl out there are pretty endangered. Things like the kalola duck and the Hawaiian goose and those kinds of things. Uh-huh. They get a few migrant birds from North America. They get a small number of fintails, uh, say five, ten thousand 10,000 a year. Um other than that everything else is in really low numbers sort of yeah. accidental as you might guess being out in the middle of the south pacific uh pintails are about the only bird that arrives there and they may or may not be from north america they could also be from asia so hmm. that's about it for for waterfowl out there
3: okay well, you like to include Hawaii? Actually, it's probably just a nice vacation getaway for the
2: <laughs> for the convention. Yeah, we've actually done uh, a little bit of work out there, wetland restoration, mainly for the Hawaiian duck, huh. um, which is a species that's uh, oh, uh, pretty endangered. Um, you know, I'm gonna have to look these up when we are done with this interview because I don't, I'm not
3: familiar with yeah. these species. So. Uh,
2: Hawaii is an interesting place. Um, There weren't a lot of native predators, but subsequently as people arrived out there, lots of things got introduced. Uh, Indian mongooses, rats, pigs, dogs, cats, Mm -hmm. all kind of prey on the native birds. And so that's kind of the conservation issue out there for, for birds anyway. Some of them are even flightless. And of course, you can imagine what happens to birds once you introduce predators and they try to run away instead of fly away. Right. It <laughs> so doesn't work out too well for them.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, w- I want to talk about a specific goose species today, but there's one other thing I wanted to ask you, and, and I'm always fascinated by this species before we talk about the uh, barnacle goose. Blue winged teal, man, they're still, I mean, I, I was uh, bass fishing, of course. I don't really do much golfing, but I sure do a lot of bass fishing on the on the uh, neighborhood golf course. And there's blue-winged teal everywhere. I actually drove two or three hours the other day to go turkey hunting. Every little pothole, blue-winged teal. You know, that we always yep. say they're the, the first to arrive, the last to leave. But I don't think some of these leave at all. I mean, are they actually staying here in Texas um, throughout the spring and summer?
2: There are a handful that... Uh... Stay in the south Mm to nest. Uh, Typically, that happens. You get a handful on the Gulf Coast, and then you'll get blue wings up in the panhandle country, the Playa country. Um, Typically, though, they are the last to leave. And, you know, May 1st is kind of a a deadline where if they're not out of here by then, they may be staying Mm -hmm. or not keeping in mind these guys, you know, they can be on, they can be in North Dakota in three days easy. And <laughs> so they could make that trip really quick if they want to. Huh. Um, but yeah, they're late and they're also late nesters. You know, they're not going to initiate nests in a big kind of way until late May, early June. Hmm. And so, yeah, they're, they're the one who lingers for sure. And they're pretty, Glad time to have you, around. you know, when
3: they show they up sure in are. Texas, it, they're, I'm not going to say they're ugly, but they're, they're not all bloomed out and they're pretty drab right.
2: colored. Right. And, uh, yep. They, uh, they molt over winter and those drakes get really pretty this time of year. You know, I do a lot of fishing too and I always enjoy seeing those flocks buzzing around, mm-hmm. you know, little birds that are lingering. So, pretty yeah. bird and a neat bird. Yeah. And they'll be back soon, starting <laughs> in August. <laughs> well,
3: um, let's do this. Let's, let's talk about the barnacle goose. Uh, I sure. don't know much about this species and actually had to, you know, when I, uh, contacted DU about, it. I was like, who could I talk to that even knows anything about the barnacle goose because it's not indigenous to North America. Uh, we're talking Correct. more Greenland, uh, some of them nest in Ireland, Scotland, the Netherlands, and even Finland, uh, Denmark, and Sweden. So uh, not here. But it's kind of like, uh, I was reading on its, uh, you know, biologically, it's very similar to our cackling goose. And it's from the, the genus... Um, Uh, branta i think is what it is correct which is you know black geese um yep so how big are these things
2: first of all oh you know they're going to be about the size of a cackling goose Uh not much maybe a hair bigger but not much okay um looks in many respects the bill you know how the cacklers got that short stubby bill uh barnacle geese have a similar bill shape um Instead of the white cheek patch, most of their face, from the bill, uh, almost to the back of their head, with the exception of the very top, is white. That's where they get their name, Branta leucopsis, means white face. Uh-huh. And then after that, they look a lot like a Canada, except they're maybe a little bit more grayish than you might think of a Canada goose being.
3: Yeah, we get those cacklers and, you know, you talked about the panhandle yep. or those blue wing teal. I mean, those come in by the hundreds of thousands, it seems like, right every uh, every winter. So plenty of those down here. Um, the interesting thing about this 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 goose, this um, barnacle goose, I saw this feature on a hostile planet on Nat, uh, Nat Geo. And mm-hmm. um, while well, I think Nat Geo a lot of times does a poor job of portraying, you know, hunting and hunters. It seems like sometimes they're they're anti-hunting, which obviously flies in the face of conservation. But they do amazing stuff, and they have just some incredible videography. um, You know, going back to planet Earth, uh, everyone's familiar with that. Hostile Planet, to me, is even more fascinating than planet Earth. And uh, some of the shots they've captured in this series are amazing. Um, And and like I said, I didn't know anything about this barnacle goose. I knew it existed, but you know, that's all I do. Oh, there's a barnacle goose that's called a barnacle goose. Don't know anything about it. Um, this thing nests, in Greenland anyway, 400 feet high on these rocky cliff faces. and That's right. Yeah, which, which it seems very odd because generally speaking, uh, geese appear to me to be a, very clumsy, much like a dove. I have a dove that it's back this year, just made a nest on my speaker on my patio. And, uh, that, you know, these nests are just little twigs and sticks thrown together. Very clumsily, and it just seems like that a goose is kind of the same same way as far as building a nest would be.
2: Goose nests are pretty simple; uh, usually, a little depression in gravel or sand, and lined by down off the female's breast. Um, so, a couple things about geese, and we'll get to barnacle geese. But there's really two kind of mating uh, systems in geese. Some nests colonial, meaning a big group of birds. And individual pairs will nest with a whole bunch of other pairs in a big colony, uh-huh. uh, snow geese, Ross geese, those kinds of things. That's an anti-predator adaptation, uh, basically numbers, the numbers. overwhelm. Yeah. yeah. Then you get the other birds, the other groups of birds, white fronts be in this group. Uh, most of the Canada's are in this group and barnacle geese are in this group where they nest individually in isolated pairs. Uh, territorial extremely territorial and so in this case for this particular species of goose it's nesting in the equivalent of the Arctic for for North America so it's going to be the the northern European and that's uh, something about this I have to think backwards on this northwestern Asia uh, Northwestern Russia kind of Arctic region. Mm-hmm. An area that has some important predators that cause barnacle geese, at least, to adapt by choosing to nest on these rocky cliffs. Uh, those predators, arctic fox, uh, a couple of uh, uh, birds, the raven, and the glaucous gull, which is a really large gull, uh, kind of like a herring gull for those folks who, who know those birds in North America. And so predation pressure... It, In response to that, they nest high on these rocky crags where no predators can get them. And so what we're looking at then is they have a really high nest success, right? So the probability of the nest hatching is very, very high Mm -hmm. um, at that point. Females only sit on the nest. She sits on it for about 26 days. She loses a ton of weight while she's doing it. Uh, The male's around defending the nest even though defense in that part of the world is a little less important than say for a canada goose who's nesting you know at typical in more typical places um, but anyway after the hatch the goslings have to jump and the only <laughs> way to get down these birds have most of the geese are grazers and they feed on grasses and sedges along wetland margins and those kinds of things obviously on a rocky cliff there are no grasses and there are no wetlands, and so the birds have to make a big leap. Uh, as you noted, it can be up to you know 400 feet or so. And keeping in mind that the overall mass or the weight of these birds is very light, mm-hmm. so when they make this jump,
3: well, they make it at like a day old. Be, um,
2: that's right. They that's crazy. The geese, they basically have 36 hours of of in their yolk sac. They absorb it right before they hatch. What's left of it. Gives them about twenty four to thirty six hours of energy before they have to find food and they have mm-hmm. to find water. Which that grass and is a so long they, yes, <laughs> it, it can be up to a mile or so. And so they got to make the leap, and they make this jump and they free fall. And you know they look pretty pathetic. They got their little wings out and their little feet flayed out, just like wood ducks do when they jump out of cavities. Um, and then they bounce. Sometimes they bounce off the cliffs. They bounce off rocks. And ultimately. Uh, Gravity takes them to the lowest point, and they land. Sometimes they're a bit stunned, uh, but they seem to survive. And, you know, basically about 90% of the goslings that make the jump at day one survive that jump. Mm. So there's some mortality involved. I mean, they can hit sharp rocks or get caught in ledges and and crevices and those kinds of things. But about 90% of them survive, which is pretty good. Yeah. Um, To put it in perspective, only about 50% of the goslings are going to survive to fledge and fall. And so a lot more are going to get lost during the the rearing period than are lost from that big, rather impressive leap that they have to make.
3: Well, yeah, and you can see that on uh, the hostile planet. So there's three goslings in this hatch, in this clutch, and the first one jumps, bounces off these rocks, I mean, like, sharp just rocks off this cliff and ping pong and all the way down and he lands and he looks like you know he lands on his back and you think he's dead and then like you know 10 seconds he gets up and moves around and the mom flies down and is right there with him but a raven comes and you know snatches that one up and that's the end of that one
2: yep not the second point, one
3: Jones. yeah so so like you said that one survived the fall <laughs> but then you know 30 seconds later he's snacked for a raven uh so then the second one jumps, and that one ping-pongs around enough to where it's just like, it, it, it dies. It's crushed by the rocks, you know. Uh, doesn't make it. And the last one, which you got to see this footage. I'm, I'm, you might have seen it, Tom, but to anyone out there listening, just, you know, YouTuber or whatever, it's absolutely incredible how they capture this stuff. But it jumps, ping-pongs around, and, you know, finally lands. Mom's right there. And, and so the third one actually makes it, you know, to... At least they, they leave it there, so I guess it made it to the grass. You don't really know. Um, but uh, it was incredible to see these things. You talk about a wood duck maybe falling, what, 20 feet, 30 feet,
2: these things? Yeah, sometimes up to 60 or so, but, yeah, yeah. nothing like that. Yeah. yeah,
3: so, Nothing
2: like these guys are doing.
3: Yeah. And, yeah,
2: interesting, an interesting uh, thing your readers or your listeners may not know is, you know, today's resident Canada goose, the giant Canada goose, you know, it was a problem generally for overabundance. They're kind of everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that population was reduced nearly to extinction, but the remnant population was found on the bluffs of the Missouri River, nesting the same way, high up on cliffs. And those little goslings had to make the leap down to the Missouri River bottoms. So a similar sort of behavior. and Those were Canada's you're talking about. That's right, the giant Canada. Wow, uh, that race or subspecies. And so, had they not had that particular population with that particular adaptation, we might not have giant Canada's to for golfers to to yell about for pooping all over the golf course greens, <laughs> and fishermen to yell about for pooping all over the docks. Wow. Well,
3: okay. Yeah, I, I had no idea that that was uh, that behavior was. Evident here in North America. Do they still? Are there still um, those same geese in the Missouri breaks doing the same thing?
2: You know, probably, but I hadn't followed up on it. I just uh, I learned that a long time ago, and I actually hadn't. And I don't know that anybody's really following resident Canada geese much anymore, just because they're so abundant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're more of a how do we how do we shoot more and maybe control populations now. Yeah. That's why we all have the uh, early goose seasons now. That's right. That's right.
3: Well, fascinating stuff. And I don't know, I imagine you can hunt these uh, in in those particular places, these barnacle geese where they
2: do exist because their numbers are pretty strong. Yeah. In uh, northwestern Europe, you can hunt barnacle geese, Scotland. Uh, Their numbers are real strong. Uh, It's a population like most of the Arctic geese that's on the increase somewhere between 1.3 and 1.5 million birds and increasing. And even in Scotland, um, they can be a bit of a pest for, they do a lot of grazing in pasture. And so hmm. uh, the landowners are concerned that they're competing with their livestock and their sheep and that sort of thing. And so Scotland just increased uh, hunting season a bit on on these guys. But yeah, if you wanted to shoot one, you could go to Greenland, uh, probably go to Iceland and Scotland, those kinds of places. Mm. Uh, they show up in North America occasionally. We don't know, however, if those are wild birds that got lost or if they're escapes from zoos most of the time. You just can't really tell. Interesting. Um,
3: what is it about geese, and I don't know if there's any duck species that are able to do this. I imagine maybe like mergansers or something could, but these birds are they don't have the ability to feed and then regurgitate their food to their young which is essentially why you see these wood ducks jumping out of trees and now you know we're talking about these geese jumping 400 feet off of a cliff um that just I mean an adaptation that is not specific to waterfowl in general
2: uh it's not specific to waterfowl there are a number of species of birds that have a strategy where they they lay larger eggs so they invest more energy in the clutch so that the ducklings are more advanced when they hatch. Mm. Um, so if you think about, you know, pheasants do that, quail do that, uh, some, of, some of the gallinaceous birds do it, and then waterfowl do it. And so the alternative strategy is, you know, most of the songbirds lay a tiny little eggs, but when the when uh, nestlings, when they hatch, they're basically blind, almost featherless, and unable to care for themselves. So it's just two different strategies. There's technical terms. The songbirds are called altricial young. The geese and the ducks are called precocial young. And the precocial strategy means that basically they can leave the nest within a day and immediately start foraging on their own. Hmm, okay. And it's just a, just a different strategy compared to some of the other bird groups
3: fascinating fascinating um, well that's basically what I wanted to, to get into today I will mention one other thing you, you said maybe some of these barnacle geese if they are seen in North America they you know they've uh, gotten out of zoos or some kind of captivity uh, about six or seven years ago we were hunting in Wills Point Texas and these two geese came in that we honestly I didn't know what they were uh, but they came into the decoys and you know, they were acting like geese until we shot, and uh, actually it actually was Belle. This was, yeah, six, seven years ago. She brings this pink-footed goose-looking thing back, and it turns out, you know, we had to look it up on the internet, but they were Egyptian geese, and uh, oh yeah, apparently there's yep. like some colonies around the Lake Fork area that I imagine these things just uh, started as escaped pets or something like that
2: yeah probably escape from zoos or waterfowl collectors, um, those kinds of folks. but yeah, there's populations that are what I would call feral or introduced that mm-hmm. are breeding uh, South Texas Houston area, uh, South Florida, and look for them. I don't know that they're they're going to expand everywhere, but it wouldn't surprise me if they you know slowly expand their range a little bit in North America. No, they're, they're certainly a pretty bird. Yeah, they're interesting looking birds for sure. Well, Tom,
3: man, it's always great to visit with you. Thanks for jumping on and just talking about some uh, interesting stuff related to these species that uh, we all love to pursue
2: every fall. I appreciate the the opportunity and especially the opportunity to talk about something a little different this yeah. time over a little barnacle goose action. <laughs> well, hey, have fun in Hawaii. All right, man, I appreciate <laughs> it. All right, take care. See you. All right,
0: there he goes, Ducks Unlimited Chief, Biologist or Scientist, whatever you want to call him if it has to do with uh, duck or goose behavior. Um, Hey, Tom Morbin is the guy to talk to. Always a pleasure visiting with Tom. That segment of the show proudly brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. My good buddy Glenn over at Coons Canyon Ranch just bought a big chingon. I was a little jealous because he sent me a picture of it, popped up on his ranch there, and uh, what well, really is my favorite spot to hunt Axis deer. So now uh, he's got this awesome blind, which I'm going to enjoy hunting out of come this June for guns and guitars. But anyway, the big chingone it's got room for like five people. I put my whole family in mine. Probably could have put the dog in there too and uh, shot my first doe with all three kids, not my first doe, but uh, the first time that the girls had ever seen a deer shot. Uh, this past fall. Anyway, it was a wonderful experience, and it's only possible because we were out of the wind and the elements and the cold and uh, not making, because I guarantee you, it was a circus in there, uh, but it also kept our sound profile down as well. So check it out. It's the Big Chingon. It's family-friendly, and you can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. Uh, we will be right back with Brian Lynn of the Sportsman's Alliance. There is a targeted sweeping anti-hunting legislation push going on right now across the entire country has the Sportsmen's alliance ever seen such a targeted approach and uh, what are some of the more incredulous bills out there currently that are staring sportsmen and women in the face we discuss next on the Lone star outdoor show now the is a tricky thing yours more than
1: life wanting with the look on your face like you've seen it go
0: In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000.
1: Hey, hey, y'all, this is Roger Crager, and if I'm not out fishing or trying to take over the world, I'm listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. But I'm older now, and I've learned to hold my tongue. You can't speak the truth even when it's right in front of you. But you gotta be careful who you might offend. Yeah, I get crazy That's
0: the Long Star yeah. Outdoor Show's own Roger Kreger Bringing us back from break crazy again Love that tune, fight. even though I disagree with Roger Maybe sometimes you're not supposed to tell the, the truth Even though it's right in front of you But for better or worse, I always seem to, uh, <laughs> to go down that rabbit hole And uh, it makes for some interesting conversations And a lot of, a lot of folks don't care for me Mostly uh, folks that don't like to hunt or fish, so They can kiss my hiney. Uh, I'm Cable Smith. Thank you for being here, by the way. And thanks to our title sponsor, Dallas Safari Club, who lives that mantra as well. They're gonna tell the truth, uh, no matter what. And when it comes to big game conservation, they are the global leader. That's why I wanna encourage you to check out the website. It's just biggame.org, and this is a group of people who are passionate about conservation, hunters' rights, and hunter advocacy. So for more info, check us out, biggame.org. Love to have you. Um, okay, with that being said, let's bring on our next guest. He is the vice president of the communications for one of my favorite organizations. Um, speaking of uh, truth-telling, and you know what? Uh, <laughs> um, this just This made me think of an interview with Ted Nugent back in, it had to be nearly a decade ago. Probably one of the first shows we ever did. It was about the time Obama got elected the first term, and uh, Ted was like, "You know why people like Rush Limbaugh are important?" And he said, "It's because they spotlight the cockroaches." <laughs> and I'm not calling Obama a cockroach, which clearly Uncle Ted was, uh, but it's important to have uh, the the whistleblowers, the truth tellers out there. And Sportsman's Alliance is just like uh, Dallas Safari Club, and much like myself, they're going to tell the truth even if it's not what people want to hear. And it's so very important in today's age because the anti-hunters are using lies and uh, emotional reaction to try to pass anti-hunting legislation, and they're doing it nationwide in perhaps the most targeted and widespread effort that we've ever seen here in uh, 2019. And so without further ado, uh, let's go ahead and dive into some of these issues, which I think y'all are going to find mind-blowing, to be honest with you. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome Brian Lynn to the show.
1: Hey, thank you. It's awesome to be on here. It is my pleasure. Um, so before
3: we get into uh, the meat of today's conversation, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how long you've been with Sportsman's Alliance and, and, and what you did
1: previously. Sure. Um, well, I've been with the, the Alliance for, I guess it's coming up on five years now in October. Um before I was here, I freelanced and wrote for just about everybody out there in the outdoors world. Uh, little TV and some canine stuff. I was the uh, Gun Dogs blogger for uh, Outdoor Life, and I was senior editor there uh, for a couple of years. Before that, I was at ESPNOutdoors.com and l- helped launch that. Hmm. And
3: was that with Tom that Miranda?
1: Uh, yeah, he was. He was one of our guys and. Uh. Uh, yeah, so I ran the conservation section and the sporting dog section and headline news and, and then uh, was Bassmaster editor for a while and uh, did that and actually started out almost 20 years ago in Texas doing a small little magazine down there that covered the state of Texas all hunting and fishing opportunities like every two weeks I was cranking that sucker out. So
3: Right on, right on. So where did you live in Texas?
1: Uh, I lived in the DFW, in the Metroplex area there. Oh, cool. Yeah. Originally so from Washington State. Okay. Grew up up there, uh, upland bird hunting and waterfowling, some little bit of deer and stuff. So, yeah,
3: pretty diverse. All the country. Yeah, pretty diverse background there. Yeah. Um. So that's. I feel like we know a little bit more about you. What about uh, Sportsman's Alliance? Uh, for our listeners out there who are not familiar with the organization, uh, talk a little bit about its history.
1: Yeah, it's a great organization. I actually uh, have always been. A fan of the Sportsman's Alliance, even when I was at uh, ESPN and other places I'd use use us as a resource to keep a pulse on what the Animal Rights Movement is doing. Uh, The Alliance exists only to protect hunting, fishing, and trapping from the Animal Rights Movement specifically. We don't have a big game record book or do habitat, you know, enhancement or anything for a species, whether it's ducks or pheasants or anything like that. What we do is we protect hunting, fishing, and trapping from the animal rights movement. We do it in all 50 state legislatures, the court system, both federal and state courts, and at the ballot box. Hmm. So it's really, you know, it's sometimes it's hard from a marketing perspective that we don't have this on-the-ground item to show or a widget to sell to you or whatever we're you know evan says we're selling insurance basically uh you know until you need us you don't think about it and then when it's there it's when you do need us you're in trouble yeah. you know because the animal rights movement it is in your backyard and coming in the house and trying to take away some form of hunting fishing or trapping what through regulations or using the ballot box and doing an outright ban and taking it out of the equation completely. So we've been around since 1977, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of in the 70s is when the animal rights movement really came into the United States. It started over in Europe and then made its way here and has about the mid-70s is when it started and started really picking up. Um, And they came into Ohio and put a ballot initiative up and tried to ban trapping. Some, you know, local trappers and sportsmen and, and biologists and businessmen got together and like whoa, 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 you know, and they uh, fought the, the ballot initiative. They put the messaging together and, and defeated it. But then as they do today, the animal rights movement just keeps moving on. They just went on to other neighboring states and kept trying to do that. And so those people would call these guys that won in Ohio and said, hey, how did you beat these guys hmm. and so that was kind of the genesis they're like hey we need to create a organization that does this and the sportsman's alliance what is the sportsman's alliance today was born and we've been working and fighting to protect hunting fishing and trapping since the 1977 so about 40 years now forty two hmm. years
3: wow okay still based out of columbus where all this originated
1: yep, yep. okay
3: right on right on well i, I I think you guys, just from, you know, what I see on social media, you guys are very good about, I, let's call your delivery unapologetic, you know, I think there's a lot of people who, a lot of organizations that want to tiptoe around controversy, Don't want you know, that's not Sportsman's Alliance, you're, you're out in front of it and say, hey, uh, this is wrong, this is, goes against science and everyone, you know, you need to be aware of it and if it hurts your feelings, we don't really give a crap.
1: Yeah, no, exactly, and, you know, that's another reason I love the organization is it kind of fits my personality as well. (laughs) I'm the same way, like, let's just jump in the trenches and go at it. You
3: and me both, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's like, let's throw down, here it is, uh, here's the facts, you know, let's talk about it, and, you know, disagreement's fine, but, you know, your emotions don't get to trump science and don't get to trump 100 years of wildlife management just because you feel a certain way or somebody named some, you know, deformed bear in new jersey you don't get to take bear hunting away right like this is just crap so let's uh call it what it is and fight it you know we don't care if you have a d or an r after your name if you're a politician if you're trying to take hunting fishing or trapping from us we're gonna fight and let it be known you know uh you look at our logo we redid that a couple years ago and it's kind of like a a point a spear point that's kind of what we think of ourselves as is you know the the point on a on your arrow is you know the smallest part of it but that's what penetrates and the weight and the mass and what's behind it you know pushes it through and carries it through and and makes the kill and that's kind of how we think of ourselves we're the point of the spear you know or the arrow and the weight of our members and the hunters and fishermen and everybody in the industry and the other organizations are the mass behind us
3: well so how how are you guys financed this is it, it, let me let me back that up how many employees are there and and who finances it obviously memberships going to be a part of that but
1: yeah yeah it's uh we have uh, a membership program so you can join for 35 bucks 50 bucks whatever there's different tiers and then you know donors or they can donate uh you know a lot of donations come in at the end of the year people doing taxes and whatever mm-hmm. uh we get foundation grants um so that's really how we're We're funded. We're not we're not a huge organization. We're pretty small in the scope of things, you know, compared to Ducks Unlimited, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, all these guys. We're really small. And uh, in the office, I think there's probably 15 of us Hmm. total. And, you know, we have outside counsel that's in D.C. or yeah, D.C., um, you know, who does a lot of our legal stuff. But uh, full-time employees, it's a little over a dozen, 15 or so. Yeah. Um, So we're small, and we're going up against the Humane Society of the United States.
3: Well, it's a small organization doing big things. You mentioned Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. There's other ones, you know, uh, BHA. All these organizations do wonderful things, but at the end of the day, they don't do anything that's nearly as important as what you guys are doing because I don't need public lands. I don't need healthy elk herds. Uh, I don't need those things if I can't take my gun or my bow into the field and uh, enjoy the hunt. I mean, that's, uh, that's where it all starts.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, uh, you know, public lands, access, all that stuff's important, habitat and doing all these things. But, I mean, you know, I work with all these different organizations, too, and I've been in the industry for 20 years, and we'll sit down and talk. And, you know, it, I have friends at Ducks Unlimited and stuff, and they say it. They're like, you allow us to do what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, if we lose and a piece of this goes away, it gets taken away. And, uh, you know, like you said, it, the public land thing is, it's two sides of the same coin. You have to have access. You have to have that property. But you also have to be able to manage it and hunt it. You know, if you don't have the hunting side of it, the consumptive nature that we are as hunters, fishermen, and trappers, you don't have anything. You know, I have a park that I can go for a walk in. Yeah, I need that. I need a place yeah. I can shoot. Hiking's great, but
3: uh,
1: <laughs> yes. I want to hike with a gun on my back, and when I get up to the top, I want to shoot something and I carry it out.
3: Yeah, <laughs>
1: you know? exactly. I don't want to just go look at it.
3: Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, you, you, you see everything else. I mean, let's—we're not bloodthirsty. Let's—I mean, we're a. Uh, there are no more naturalists, more uh, you know, enthusiastic folks about wildlife than than hunters, because that's part of the journey. Is oh, hey, look at the gray squirrel in the tree while you're on a spring bear hunt, or, you know, whatever it is. There's so many cool things to see that most people, and most of the people who are trying to take these rights away, they never experience that stuff ever.
1: No, it it gets into this idea of conservation versus preservation. You know, they just want us to preserve everything as if... Somehow nature is frozen in time, which, as outdoorsmen, we know that's not true. It's always changing, you know. It's a it's a boom and bust cycles of things going on, um, but they just want us to be passive observers, as as conservationists, as consumers, as hunters. We want to be immersed in it. We, we're part of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. We're part of this, you know.
3: Preservation is a death sentence for wildlife because where's the where's the money coming from? Just Hey, uh, you don't want to go for a hike and look at wildlife? Great, but what are you contributing financially to wildlife? Nothing. You're not doing yeah. anything.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. You know, and it's uh, that's where we got into. Don't it.
3: me wrong. I like taking a camera sometimes and just taking, you know, take some pictures, you know, whatever.
1: Yeah. But
3: But uh, that <laughs> there's there's no money that's being generated revenue for no. wildlife.
1: You, you remove you remove you know what we do whether it is hunting, fishing, trapping, or uh, recreational shooting is a huge part of that. You remove that, you're removing all the funding. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, The wildlife management model is built on the backs of sportsmen, and there's n- so far nothing else to replace it. And it has a 100-year track record of being successful. Yeah. You know, this is where we get into the idea. You know, If you see on our social posts and stuff, we hashtag things, huntervationist. You know, that came out uh, a couple of years ago when, remember when PETA did their big uh, social media frame to put your profile oh, yeah, in and it yeah. shoot selfies, not animals. Mm-hmm. And then we all started using it to put our dead <laughs> animals on. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, we were sitting here in the office going, man, we need to do something like that. How do we do this? What, what can we say in that smallest space and whatever? And like, well, what do we believe in? We, we want to hunt and we believe in conservation. We sat there kicking it around and came up with huntervationist, a combination of hunter and conservationist, you know, and that gets back to the idea of participation and being active in the outdoors as a hunter and immersing yourself. But it also is the conservation piece. You know, you can't have one without the other. Yeah. You know, and conservation and the funding and, you know, our most, one of our magazines, one of our last couple of magazines, we dove into it. And, you know, you're talking almost $3 billion a year, billion with a B, coming from excise taxes and license and fees or license and tag purchases. You know, you can't remove $3 billion from anything without it hurting whatever that business is. And good luck trying to find a replacement for three billion dollars every single year
3: well i didn't you know contribute the whole three billion but after doing my taxes it was a lot
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you know the yeah. good thing
3: about being in this business i wrote it all off <laughs> yep yep, <laughs>
1: exactly it's, it's almost fun you're like oh but i can buy this and oh. i can write it off at the end of the year <laughs>
3: i was looking and there was like you know at least four zeros at the end of it and i was like oh god but yep. hey that's okay Write it, it off. Write it off, you're <laughs> like, but
1: it still costs money. Yeah. but <laughs> yeah. it won't go there. <laughs> um,
3: well, let's do this. Let's take a quick break and come back. And I want to really get into some of the legislation uh, that state legislatures are trying to pass right now. Uh, you guys are, you know, on top of it, and I think there's some definitely some things that we need to, to uh, discuss.
1: You bet. Sounds good.
0: Excellent. And that segment was brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. They've been helping folks finance their own piece of paradise for over 100 years. So if you're looking to take that plunge, whether you want a property for recreating, uh, hunting, fishing or running cattle. But Maybe you just want to get the hell out of the big city. Lone Star at Credit has you covered. And uh, you can find them at lonestaradcredit.com. We will be right back with more from Brian night. Lynn of the Sportsman's Alliance. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show.
1: He never said too much about home or the bruises on his back. I asked him about him one time, but he never answered back. Yeah, William, you grew up, pardon me.
2: Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch, here reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one of a kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by Hunters for Hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998
1: or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Been a while since I run into you. Heard you
2: made a man say I do. You give
0: him love in exchange for the pearls that ain't in love. Want the a little Eric Willis for you this morning. Lights go out is the name of that one. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Uh, thanks to a long-time presenting sponsors as well, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. It is great to be here talking outdoors with you today. Um, we are about to get back into it with Brian Lynn of the Sportsman's Alliance. But first, this segment is proudly brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. My good friends, Josh and Becky Gunther. Uh, I keep telling y'all, they've been taking care of me for eight or nine years now. They do everything from fish replicas to my bear skin rug that I'm sitting on here in the studio uh, to European mounts. And of course, they do amazing shoulder mounts. Hey, Bobcats, I mean, Becky is as good as it gets, and if you've seen uh, bobcats that look like their eyes are well, they're cross-eyed, Uh-uh. cats are hard to do, Becky's as good as it gets on those as well. So check it out, gr8mounts.com, that's gr8mounts.com for your next trophy mount. Um, okay, well, with that being said, let's get back into it with Brian Lynn, the uh, VP of Communications for Sportsman's Alliance. Brian, thanks for sticking around through the break.
1: Yeah, thank you. Not a problem.
3: So we talked a little bit about the history of Sportsman's Alliance and um, your place in the grand scheme of protecting hunters, trappers, anglers' rights. Um, I want to kind of shift gears. Actually, you know what, before we do that, I have one other question. I've always been wondered about organizations like Sportsman's Alliance. So you guys, your job is to notify us, you know, what's going on. Who notifies you? How do you guys keep tabs of what's going on in fifty different state legislatures?
1: Yeah, that's that is the trick right there. Always
3: wondered. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, that's the trick. We have a government affairs team. Very good at what they do. Um we have software and I, uh, I don't know, they do something magic on their side, but it's there's software that scans bills that are introduced or there's you know, flags that pop up hmm. you know, keywording that uh, you know, if it pertains to sportsmen and hunting dogs or whatever and it flags it and we review it manually and then if it's something if it's nothing throw it out if it's something then you know start digging and looking at it and a lot of it you know oftentimes uh people will send it to me on Facebook or Instagram or whatever and I'll kick it over because a lot of times this stuff just pops up and we're busy working on the fires that are going and didn't see the other one start so mm-hmm. somebody will send a, send it over and I'll kick it to them and they'll chase it down so a lot of times our members are saying you know the guys that are engaged saying hey this is coming or you know whatever this just got introduced today and then we'll follow up and you know if we're doing our job really well the stuff doesn't even you know we, we don't even have to publicize it, it, the, it we're kind of like an iceberg you know mm-hmm. what we're, what you see on social media is just a little part of it you know there's I think in this last legislative session that we're in right now, currently the government affairs team was working on and monitoring about 500 bills.
3: Goodness, wow! Yeah.
1: You know, and so what we put out there on social media is just a fraction of that. Mm-hmm. But they are monitoring, watching, seeing where this is going. Uh, if it's something you know we don't like, they'll call a sponsor or whatever and be like, "Hey, this is." Yes, you know, you need to get rid of this because here's why, and da 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 da. And a lot of times they just pull it right then, or they will amend it so it's, you know, palatable for us, you know. Um, so when that stuff happens, we don't have to put alerts out. We don't have to say anything. It's when it goes beyond that that then they go, well, we're still going to do it. And it's like, okay, hmm. i got to fire up the troops and let people know and activate this and then start working with committee members and trying to educate them on you know, the nuances of what's going to happen here. Cause a lot of these guys are just basically ignorant of wildlife management and the role hunters play. And yeah. Why something that seems or sounds reasonable isn't, you know? So, yeah. yeah.
3: Well, currently we're seeing this, I mean, it's a nationwide, it's coast to coast effort and it is a, a very organized, methodical effort. And, and, and they're trying to do it behind the scenes. I mean, the, they don't like when Sportsmen's Alliance puts something out. Here's an alert of what's going on. They want it to be all done hush hush. But they are the animal rights groups are doing a you know it's a targeted campaign essentially um, where they're having uh, you know politicians sponsor legislation that attacks hunting. And most of it that I've seen in this session uh, is in regard to predator hunting. Ryan and uh, I don't know why. Because when I look at a bear, I don't like think, "Oh, that's so much cooler than a deer." I just see an animal that I would like to shoot and, you know, eat. <laughs> you know, it's like a bear's life is no more valuable to me than an elk or, or, you know, anything else. And of course, we're not talking about endangered species or anything like that. These predators get anti-hunters just triggered, man. And oh yeah,
1: yeah, no, it uh, it's true, and it's an easy it's an easy get for them. You know, I have, I have an equation that I use and it's the bigger the eye and the longer the eyelash, the greater the outrage, mm. you know, mm-hmm. they, they go after that. And, you know, it's weird. You think about it and you're like, okay, you got bears. Yeah, they're cool and everything, but they will eat you too. Right. You know, and it's like, they don't, that doesn't equate to them that it can be a threat. But I think a lot of it, you know, we had, we had a talk earlier this week about it and we've anthropomorphized everything. I call it the Disneyfication of oh, yeah. wildlife. You know, it's uh, you look at bears. You know, there's Winnie the bear. There's Smokey the bear. There's all you know, teddy bears.
3: Right? Baloo. Is, is that the one in Jungle Book?
1: Yeah, Baloo. You know? <laughs> so you got these big bears and they're funny and they're cute and all this and that's how a disconnected society, your urban society starts thinking. That's how this the animal rights movement are thinking or portray it anyways you know when somebody does get attacked they say well it's rare when the ecosystem gets screwed up they say well nature balances itself which is the greatest fallacy out there it's never balances itself it's always boom and bust cycles
3: well um, and you can't take the human equation out of it with our uh-huh. you know ever-expanding population it's uh yeah it's we're here to manage and you know coexist all this crap about us invading you know the animal space it's just uh not real i mean it's
1: yeah i like, mean it's, it's not reality yeah. like okay yeah we do impact and we do take habitat and we do this but that's society i mean we're growing we're doing this this is the realities of the situation and if you want more habitat you want more animals you need more habitat and if you want that you have to buy it you have to fund it you have to take care of it you have to manage it uh you can't Remove management of one species, be it predator or prey, when it's in a completely managed system. And we manage in this country from the ground up. The habitat can hold this much, can hold this many prey species, can hold this many predator species. you know. And you can't throw that out of balance. And that's what, in effect, that's what all these animal rights bills do is start putting protections on different animals. It picks and chooses which ones they want to protect, yeah. which ones they think they can protect, and that just causes their populations to boom. Well, guess what? They're eating something. <laughs> you know, they're consuming something, and whatever they're consuming is going to start going down. And now your system's all out of whack. So I don't know. It just doesn't uh, doesn't make sense. But predators, especially the last couple years, have been a prime target for them. Bears, mountain lions are a huge one they're going after. Coyotes now, and coyote contests, which is the big legislation we're seeing this.
3: Yeah, I don't want to talk about coyotes. Here's a species that, uh, you know, I'll shoot everyone I see, and I will never make a difference. You know, Uh, the thing about coyotes is they're the most resilient species in North America. They're in South Carolina, North Carolina, now places that they never were. New York City. I just read
1: a story about uh, they did a study in Chicago on urban coyotes. And they put tracking collars on a couple of them, and two of them made a den on the top floor of a parking garage across from Soldier Stadium.
2: <laughs> wow!
3: And
1: they raised a pup, raised a litter of pups. Wow! So wow. like, whoa, you know, these guys can adapt to anything.
3: And so we have a gross overpopulation of these animals across the country, and and this is the animal that, I, the majority of this of these uh, new bills that I've seen that you guys have been posting about pertain to coyotes, and you mentioned. Coyote contest, we've seen that in Oregon, um what New York, uh Nevada, Mexico,
1: Nevada, Oregon, Wisconsin, Montana had something. Mm-hmm. We got that killed. Um New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's like uh how many was it? It was twelve bills and now there's a regulation up for vote in Arizona. So twelve, thirteen changes, thirteen bills in nine states. Mm. Mm-hmm
3: where we're at. And so these would ban coyote contests, but also when these people, when these anti-hunting factions have the politicians write the legislation, they include other language that does things like ban hunt tests, for like so I've got a chocolate lab, I want her to go to a master hunt test, uh, you know, try to get her master title whatever. No, that would be illegal. Yeah. The yeah. one in New York, I believe, would prohibit uh, hunt tests.
1: Yeah, New York, New Jersey, which got killed, but New York, New Jersey, Wisconsin. Also pin-raised birds. Oregon, Oregon got narrowed down, uh-huh. but what happens is they write them very vaguely, Yeah, you know, very vague. Any contest, competition, whatever, involving wildlife that results in prizes, ribbons, payouts, whatever, mm-hmm. um, but... So you start, you know, it's the law, it's, it's legal, it's words and it's language. So you look at that and you're like, okay, contest, competition, derbies, yada, yada, yada. And the key is wildlife. Well, then you have to look at, well, how is wildlife defined in this state? And such as in Oregon, you know, I was getting some pushback from some of the dog people I know. They're like, well, pen-raised birds don't count. Well, if you look at the Oregon Code, in some places they say wildlife and they specify wildlife, in other places they just say ducks and pheasants and whatever. Well, do you want to hang your life and your, you know, record and everything else on how either a game warden or a prosecutor or a judge defines it? You know, that open that open uh, verbiage there. But just not just
3: asinine nature. I mean, pin-raised birds, people have been using them to train dogs, to introduce youngsters. I mean, heck, if you said, hey, Cable, you want to go uh, take Belle and have her fetch a bunch of quail that we're going to shoot today? We've got a young pup that's going to work and point them and Bell can retrieve them. I would say, absolutely. That sounds like a great afternoon.
1: Yeah, but it's one way to slice and dice us Mm -hmm. you know they take a little bit they say they're talking about coyotes but if they can get it passed then they can start shutting down other things i mean some of these in new york and wisconsin and stuff were so egregious that you make a bet on who's going to kill the first coyote or whatever with you know gets an ice cream cone well now you just broke the law uh your big buck contests you know who has who you know little local club you belong to or something and you're keeping track of it. That's a competition. You get a payout. Uh, you know anything like that? Uh, squirrel hunt for kids. You know if you're tracking it and doing it. Hell, some of it was even just promoting it. Mm-hmm. So you put a post up on Facebook.
3: I saw that. Yeah. You yeah. Know,
1: or and but then here.
3: I wonder about tournament fishing. I'm sure that that would be impacted in some of these situations as well
1: yeah it could be you know some of them specifically said fishing would didn't count, but then some of them didn't, so wildlife you know you're back to the definition, you know, but what was really interesting is we watched these start to come in, you know it came in here, and usually there's one or two a year we see, mm-hmm. and this came in one, two, three, four, and then they got more and more egregious and you know more and more broad and taking more and more, not even trying to just say coyotes, they're saying any kind anything involving wildlife. And then it moved to Nevada. And Nevada had had a bill that they were putting out there to stop and if you did this, you participated in it, promoted it, you it was a felony. It became a felony. And it was
3: Oh yeah, I saw this. Right.
1: It equated with manslaughter. Rape. <laughs> yeah. Rape manslaughter like Arson. You shoot a coyote in a competition you get the same penalty as somebody who kills another person. Yeah. You know, and that's that's basically like the evolution of the animal rights movement. That's our ultimate goal is to equate animal life and human life. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. stop all hunting.
3: Yeah, it's not about the coyotes. Humans. That's same. just the, it's no. just the species that they've hung their hat on this go around. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's designed like you said to just stop hunting completely.
1: Yeah. They're they're just doing it piece by piece. Species by species, state by state, taking yeah. what they can, you know. And every time they win, every time they get something passed, they win. We lose. We have to win every single battle just to maintain our line, just to maintain what we already have.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: They only have to win once, and they take it, take something from us.
3: Well, I use uh, California as, as we as a prime example for how this, you know, can happen. For example, uh, I would think it was in the '90s they banned mountain lion hunting. Okay. Yeah. So that was before I was ever doing this before my time in the in the outdoor space. Um, then, see, I started in 2008. I think it was about 2010 or 2011. I had a hound hunter, a houndsman from Northern California, on. It was a black bear and bobcat hunter. Made a bunch, a significant part of his income off of that every year. Practicing conservation, you know, his hunters would buy tags. He'd sell the hunt and fund the you know conservation money wheel. Uh, they outlawed, that year they lost the vote. They lost, um, and they no longer can hunt bears or bobcats with hounds. Yep. And now this year, this is just recently, uh, one of my followers um, sent me this note, and I think you guys hit on it as well, that they are trying to outlaw the take of bobcats altogether, meaning you cannot take a bobcat in California, end of story. Yeah. And so here's the evolution. It went from mountain lions to, to, now you can't hunt bears and Uh, bobcats with hounds and now you cannot hunt bobcats period yep and uh you know that's just it's it's the it's their little uh breadcrumbs they you know their little trail of one win after another but you wake up and 20 years later and, and you have nothing you can't now you can't even hunt a bobcat
1: yeah it's it's the slippery slope that is you know come to life they don't that's exactly what they're doing and they come back they'll leave it alone for a little bit and they'll come back and hit it again and take a little bit more or move to a different species and you know, it's the same thing. I you know, grew up in Washington State. They ban the use of hounds for bears and mountain lions, you know, they banned the use of bait and they ban trapping. You know? mm. So they just keep taking and taking and they win. And a lot of it boils down to rural versus urban, you know. Oh, yeah. Washington State, California, it's the I five corridor. You know, from Seattle down to San Diego. Those big cities dictate what happens in the rest of the state, and that's scary. You know, it's saying uh, you know th- that even makes places like Texas, you know, prone to being getting that. You know, well, as long as we can
3: keep outvoting Austin, you know, we'll be all right.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, Austin, Houston, <laughs> and Dallas, you know, I mean, yeah. they can screw things up in a hurry. So, so yeah, it's it's tough, and you know, and then you get into ballot initiatives and. Qualifying for a ballot initiative, and that's how they pass a lot of this stuff the the big bands uh, Washington state with hounds and such like that
3: Well, you know now you see all these videos of mountain lions walking through neighborhoods in California and and bears and, and And then the state has to pay government trappers or hunters to go in and either remove them or relocate them Or euthanize them and that's on the taxpayers dime when you had hunters they were doing the damn job just fine already um, it's just... yeah, no,
1: they, in California, they not only have to pay to have somebody go out there and kill it Then they have to do a necropsy In, in the ballot initiative that the Humane Society of the United States passed it in, in there, it said it had to have a necropsy you know, Basically an, uh, an autopsy So you have to pay for that They didn't put a funding source in there huh. So it's coming out of the general fish and game funding source Paying for these things they kill more cats now than they did before.
3: Oh, for in Washington. sure. Washington, yeah. And they're
1: killing the wrong cats. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so yeah, it's a matter of hunters investing and paying for this and keeping it balanced, or the state does it at a cost to taxpayers, and at the end of the day, the damn animal still dies, yep. and it's not even being used. I no have,
3: value. No value I on its have Friends up life.
1: in Washington who work, you know, who do stuff for the state and the animals just get thrown away.
3: Yeah, you have
1: to. It, it sucks to say this, away.
3: Brian. It sucks, but it's reality. An animal has to have a dollar value on its life if conservation is going to work. No value? Well, nobody's taking care of it.
0: Yeah. Well, let's do this, uh, Brian. Let's take a quick break, come back, and I want to get into the anti-trapping stuff that's out there because I don't feel like the hunting community is doing a good job of supporting Trappers, um, at least not in the public forum anyway. Uh, So, where's the leadership on that front? I want to get into that after the break. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. That segment, by the way, proudly brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology. I've still got the Pulsar Trail XP50 on my 224 Valkyrie. It is the creme de la creme when it comes to thermal optics. So, if you're looking for a game changer, to get after the hogs or coyotes, specifically, you know, that's what I use it for, uh, under the cover of darkness, then check out the Pulsar Trail. You can find it at PulsarNV.com. We will be right back with more from Sportsman's Alliances' oh, Brian Lynn right here on the Lone Star Outdoor she Show.
1: was the thing around. Long and mean, every young man's dream. She turned every head in town. She was built and fond,
0: hey y'all spring is here and that means a lot of things but specifically your lawn is about to become your own worst nightmare that's why i use jc's landscaping they do everything from lawn and landscape maintenance to fertilization and weed control new premium sod installations hey you need a french drain i had to have them put in a french drain a couple years ago they do that too landscaping updates makeovers stone borders patios and much more serving the north dallas and surrounding areas you can find them at jclandscapingllc.com and tell them cable sent you
1: Welcome everybody Mary's back choir. to the
0: Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club, Queen of St. Mary's Choirs, so the name of that one, from Sean McConnell. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here today, as we are still visiting with Sportsman's Alliance VP of Communications, Brian Lynn, and we've got some trapping, anti-trapping things to discuss here, things that really irk me, by the way, because... No one really seems to be talking about it, or nobody cares that this art form, this American pastime, which, don't kid yourself, it wasn't the gold rush that pushed Western expansion across the United States, it was the beaver trapping fur trade, uh, originally, and uh, it's just a shame to see what has happened to trapping and the stigma attached to this ancient art form uh, over the last... 30, 40 years, and especially right now, today. Uh, So, we'll get back into that here with uh, Brian momentarily, but first, this segment brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas, and this spring, this summer, when you fire up the smoker or the barbecue pit, grab the new Lone Star 24-7. It's uh, only 2.4% alcohol, I think, and 67 calories, so it's with you know, folks describe as a, a day drinker. <laughs> not gonna put you on your high knee if you wanna enjoy a cold bottle or can of suds. Lone Star twenty four seven. All right. With that being said, Brian, thanks for sticking around. Uh like I alluded to, this really bothers me on the trapping side of things because no one in the outdoor industry, like as far as personalities or or uh, or leaders, folks that I would call leaders Um, really seem to want to take trapping on. And I don't understand if it's because they're afraid of the backlash. But, you know, we'll talk about it on this show. uh, That is for sure. So what are some of the the issues that are going on with trapping right now and the anti-trapping legislation that we're seeing uh, throughout many state legislatures?
1: Yeah, uh, trappers are on the front line of all of this. I mean, they're the first ones to go. They're also the first ones to rally. You know, a lot of them don't have a ton of money, but they're fighting to protect what they enjoy, and that also helps protect everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it uh, they are a prime target, and there's a whole lot of emotional language and pictures and videos that the animal rights movement can put out and that's what they do is they feed off emotion and not science and fact you know they don't let you know that oh yeah you can actually release them from that trap and let them go um they demonize it as much as possible with emotionally driven language and yeah our sportsmen ourselves we need to stand up and stick up for them and put the facts out there put the science out there the wildlife management here's why it's important you know just uh We usually do an issue every year devoted to that, you know, the the cost of trapping. And it's hundreds of millions of dollars if trapping is removed. It starts impacting, you know, communities, uh, beavers, you know, building dams and the structure damage that can be done, rabies, uh, coyote depredation going up on cattle, you know. But Mm the animal rights movement doesn't care about that. It's not what they care about. And actually driving the price of cattle up is great for them because that means it becomes more expensive. They use economic tactics as well for dairy and poultry and uh, beef to attack ranching. That's all they wanna do. They wanna stop hunting, they wanna stop ranching. They think we should all eat vegetables. And the ironic thing is that they don't realize that animals get killed who are eating their vegetables. So the animals still die.
3: Well, and and you you also brought ranching into the equation. See, I'm not a rancher, and and I'm like I said, I don't run my own trap line, but I'm one of them. You know, these are my people, um, and I feel like there's just a general sense of indifference. Like, oh, why should I care about ranching? You know, mm-hmm. why should I care about trapping? And this is from hunters. Like I said, and I just find that grossly unacceptable. I mean, we're all in it together. Um, things that impact ranching. Things that, you know, animal rights, stuff that, legislation that affects how you treat a cattle, I mean, that's the same crap that they're throwing at us, Yeah. you know?
1: Yeah, they don't, you know, here's what we've been saying is, they don't want to stop just one thing. They don't want to just stop trapping. They want to stop all of it, you know, and it's a small jump to go from the use of traps to then using hounds and bait and whatever else to going after bows. They've gone after bow hunting before, and they go after it. In the late 80s, 90s, they went after bow hunting, and they're probably going to ramp up and start doing it again. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And that's why we need to be putting our differences aside as, as, uh, as a group and sticking up for all of these things. We have to look at it as wildlife management, even if I don't participate in trapping or using hounds or whatever – well, we have to protect them now, or else later it's going to be your passion that's on the gr- on the chopping block. Yeah, yeah. You know,
3: hunting hunting lions with hounds is one of the most uh, incredible experiences of my life. And uh, I always said, I, I, I always said, you know, maybe I only need to kill one mountain lion in my life. But I'm starting to get the itch again, just to hear the the, the ball of those hounds on a on a hot track, and and after eating the the cat, you know, found yeah. it was edible. Yeah, I've kind of changed my tune on that, and I think I might want to do that hunt again. <laughs> yeah, no,
1: it's it's awesome. You sure. know, and, and you know, tell we have hog dogging
3: all over Texas. You know that. I mean, oh yeah, just and people listening in, in Texas need to understand that. Yeah, there's nothing right now, legislation wise. We're like one of the few states that doesn't have one of these idiotic uh, bills proposed, but they will come.
1: Oh yeah, no, they they will come. They'll they'll be there anytime and you guys you get them. A lot of stuff that we see in Texas is dog related. Mm-hmm. To stop puppy mills, which seems great, right? Seems reasonable. You don't want puppy mills, you don't want puppy, you know, dogs being mistreated, tied out on a chain in the backyard for its entire life. I think we all pretty much agree on that, you know, animal welfare versus animal rights. But what they do in Texas a lot is they are putting restrictions on you know, uh, regulation on on tethering bills or, mm. or how to run a kennel.
3: Explain tethering, because um, I think a lot of dog owners, like guys that have multiple, you know, whether it's bird, dogs, or hounds, they, they understand it, but for everyone else out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so tethering is, you know, tying your dog out. Like uh, you tie him to the tree, sure. or tie him to the doghouse, whatever, you have a cable or a chain or a rope or whatever, and the dog's attached so he doesn't run off. Um And yeah, I think we all pretty much agree a dog shouldn't be tied out for its entire life. And that's the existence that it lives, you know, but it's usually not a matter of regulation. It's usually a matter of enforcement issues. Mm -hmm. You know, police or animal protection services don't have time to go and get all these dogs and build a case and see it through. So a lot of times they'll put tethering bills in there that say, oh, the tether has to be 15 feet or 20 feet or whatever, and they can't be out on the tether if it's above you know, 85 degrees or below 32 degrees or some arbitrary number that doesn't actually mean anything. Mm -hmm. Dogs experience heat and cold much differently than us. But they'll do that kind of stuff or say, you know, start regulating kennels. And if enforced to the letter of the law, now your sporting dog kennels and your trainers and everybody are going to be put out of business or they're going to uh, their costs are going to be so high that nobody's going to be going to be able to afford their services.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, going back to that lion hunt in Colorado, the guy probably had, I would say, close to 30 hounds and they all had their own separate dog house uh, with hay in it, so you know, even when it was freezing cold outside, they were nice and warm in there, but they were all on a chain that couldn't have been longer than I don't know. Five feet, maybe, and that was for their own safety. The, the yep. dogs would fight if they got too close to the other one. You know, they got pack hierarchy. Hierarchy, um, also to keep dogs from breeding females from the, you know, when a bitch would come into heat. Um, and then, more, most importantly, to keep them from getting tangled up and hurting each yeah. other, or hurting themselves.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that would put yeah. a guy
3: like him out of business. You know.
1: Yeah, it totally. How we gotta
3: have eighteen foot tether for all thirty dogs? I mean, come yeah. on.
1: And how much room are you gonna have to have? And what's gonna happen? And yeah, you know, and there's dogs. Some dogs that you know, beagles and stuff that you know, try to kennel. Some of them, they'll climb right on out and hang themselves. Or
3: <laughs> we had a whatever. beagle when I was a kid. We named her the Elliot the Wanderer because she would just get and wander. And uh, she lived to the, I think, be like thirteen. She finally got hit by a car in one of her. Uh, wandering expeditions, but those beagles, man, they they just don't.
1: They get their nose full of something. They just keep going. <laughs> going.
3: I've hunted rabbits with them. They're they're cool little dogs, though. Cool hounds. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so there's you know even Texas isn't immune to it. You know, so mm-hmm. they, that's where we see a lot of things coming in there.
3: Well, have you ever seen such a a targeted nationwide campaign like like we're seeing right now? Like where all of this is coming down in the same session
1: we haven't seen a year or a session like this with this volume in probably 10 years or more, you know, at least this could be one of the, it's one of the busiest ever. It's like, it's just, we're drowning trying to keep up with it and get it out and, and, you know, talk to people and make calls and all that. Um, the animal rights movement loves to do things like, you know, right this time it's coyote contests mm-hmm. and it's taken hold, you know, it's got news coverage and then they've, they've launched it in these different states now, you know, nine states, 10 states, something like that. Um, and they'll, they'll do this every now and then well they will they'll concentrate on one thing and pop it around and they can start using political pressure then. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, your neighboring state's doing it or it passed in this neighboring state. You need to be like this and basically shame politicians and turn it into a, a media war, you know. And the animal rights movement, their, their messaging is super friendly to the media. Ours isn't. Yeah, yeah we want to kill this thing. Oh, well, that doesn't really go over too well with the general public who doesn't know anything. But the message the animal rights movement puts out there and the image that goes with it, oh, it's powerful very powerful you know it's uh, we live in a soundbite society nowadays you know so a headline is all they need and they can tell the whole story just by putting the word trophy slaughter whatever in there and it connects with the with the audience right away our story as sportsmen is much harder you know it's longer you try to explain Pittman roberts and dollars and everything else Oh, you mean
3: like facts and science? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Logic. Yeah. It's like your
1: eyes glaze over and people are like, oh, okay. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, they didn't get it. You know, it's like sitting either in science class versus recess. Mm -hmm. This is easy to digest and I get it, and this isn't.
3: Yeah. Well, so how can, you know, how can folks make a difference once you've put the alerts out there, once you've done. That part, to let people know what's going on, let people know that these bills are being trying to be passed in their home states. What can they do at that point?
1: The best thing you can do is actually pick up the phone and call, literally. Like if they can get 10 calls, that's going to start making an impact. They're going to be like, oh, wait a minute, we're getting calls here. Yeah. You know, it's, in, it's kind of like media. You know if one person writes in to you, there's 100 at home sitting there thinking about it. So calling those politicians, emails work, you know, it's good. It's better than nothing. Mm -hmm. They're hearing from you. But a phone call and telling them why this is bad and what this means to you and those stories and getting, you know, a little mad at them, that's going to start working. And if they're getting flooded by calls, that's really going to start working. But even five or ten people calling in will make a difference because they know that other people are out there doing that. And so that is the biggest chunk you know, know, is to actually pick up the phone. Beyond that,
3: listen just to everyone the out there, to, actually pick up the phone. Don't yeah. be like, oh, someone else is going to do it. No, pick up the phone and make a phone call.
1: Yeah, you know, and I've done it. And it's, you know, it can be a little intimidating or you feel kind of weird because, you know, some aide picks up the phone or whatever. But you start talking and just let them have it a little bit. And they're going to be taking that note and message and passing it on. And, you know, so that's the biggest thing. Pick mm-hmm. up the phone and do that next email them in and do the same thing. And then, you know, the other side loves to use social media. So we need to do that too. Share the alerts, raise hell. I mean, that's what happened, you know, with the dog stuff and, you know, the coyote contest a lot is, was pretty involved in both NARA and HRC and different things like that. And New Jersey, I kicked it over to my old club down there and both New York and New Jersey, you know, and they, it took off like wildfire within that group, and they started calling and raising hell, and got the Jersey bill killed and still working on the New York one um you know, but again, as testers and trialers, like we go to you know we'd go up to New York from New Jersey and run tests for the weekend. Well, I'm not gonna be going up there if you ban this because there's no reason to, and you're gonna lose out on all this revenue in your local communities and you know start hitting them with economics, yeah. how much you spend in their districts and that you're not going to be doing that if this passes, they're going to start listening. So. Have
3: you heard of the uh, – this is totally off topic, but, a bit, a topic, but you, you brought up New York. And uh, recently I had this guy on who's, the, I guess, the head honcho over at the, uh, this, this club, and they all have little terriers, and they on Friday nights they're, they're called ratters. They go around New York City, and they hunt rats with their terriers.
1: <laughs> no, I haven't heard about yeah, that club, but that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's
3: cool, but I'm thinking some of this legislation that 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 kind of stuff would be affected by, you know, if they had it their way. They've got a rat problem. Here's the, these people are doing, letting these dogs hunt, doing what they were born to do, which chase, you know, small rodents, and helping clean up New York's rat problem. And, and these idiots would just assume, say, nope, can't do that. Yeah. We'd rather have the disease than the rats and all this other, you know, just... Yeah.
1: Well, you know. I mean, until it impacts their life, and then they're like, oh, wait a minute. I mean, that's what happened in Washington State, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they banned trapping in Washington State, and, you know, Washington is two different states, basically, the east side and the west side. And uh, the the east side, where I'm from, is farmers and ranchers and everything else, and the west side is...
3: Pearl Man, Jam you know, in Seattle
1: and off, marijuana, and all that, uh, yeah, you know. And so uh, <laughs> they banned trapping, and you know, okay, well there goes trapping for coyotes and everything else. So we're all pissed off on the east side. Well, then you know, the next spring the moles started coming up on the golf courses over there and the Capitol lawn, and
3: uh-huh.
0: started
1: putting out traps. And <laughs> all the Eastern Washington representatives were like, uh, 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 that's trapping. You can't do that. <laughs> oh wow. So, yeah, and then they figured out, oh, we'll just write an exemption for it. Yeah. So until it impacts their life, they don't care. And eventually it all comes back down to public safety. I don't care if it's a mountain lion, a grizzly bear, a black bear that's going to eat you, eat your kids, eat your pets. Your, you know, fur bears and your rats get out of control. Well, now you have a disease issue. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, keeping it all in check and in balance is most best we can. You know, it's a boom and bust cycle in nature. And we have such an impact on the ecosystem. It's irresponsible of us not to mitigate those boom and bust cycles and try to keep things yeah. in an orderly fashion. It's just irresponsible.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we are uh, about out of time here. I do want to tell you, you know, thank thank you. Thank you to the uh, Sportsman's Alliance for being at the forefront of these issues, like I said, there's so many organizations that that, are, that shy away from this stuff. They,
1: they
3: they do have clout, you know, and they could use that to make a difference, and they choose not to. Uh, you guys don't do that, and I applaud you for that, for keeping all of us abreast of, of these attacks on our rights as, as hunters, anglers, trappers, ranchers, all of it. Um, if folks wanted to get involved or, or join, uh, where's the best place for them to do that?
1: You can do that right online at our website, sportsmens, M-E-N-S, sportsmensalliance.org, or mm, G at mm. the end.
3: Probably going to have to change that to sportsperson in the near future. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, don't get me started. Oh, God. All right, well. Um, yeah, no, join up there. There's all sorts of membership levels for individuals, business partners. If you're in the industry, uh, you can join as a business partner, and it's a tax write-off Uh hunt clubs, different clubs, you know, we have club memberships, so there's uh-huh. all sorts of different, about any way you want to give us money, we'll take it, and we'll mm. give you something in return. <laughs> and uh,
3: Facebook, Instagram, Sportsman's Alliance, y'all can find them there as well. Use the hashtag Huntervationist,
1: and they'll take a look at your post. Yeah. And uh,
3: we certainly appreciate it, Brian, big fan, thanks for all you guys do.
1: No, thank you, and thanks for the help of getting the word out and everything you do to promote us, thank you.
0: All well, right, there he goes, Brian Lynn of Sportsmen's Alliance, their uh, VP of Communications, and a great organization, one that I'm proud to support because they're out there supporting you and I, hunters, anglers, uh, trappers, and, uh, and of course, dog owners too. I mean, hell, these, a lot of these anti-hunting uh, bills are aimed at us as, as hunting dog owners, so uh, they, they cover the whole gambit, and I certainly appreciate that. Um, that segment of the presentation... Proudly brought to you by John X Safaris. You know, I'm heading back to South Africa in, gosh, a couple weeks now. I leave June 5th. This will be my third year in a row with John X. I'm already making plans to go back in 2020. And if you want to be a part of that trip, it's never too early to start planning. So uh, shoot me an email to Show at gmail.com, and I'll send you the dates for John X, Lone Star Outdoors Show Safari 2020. Uh, unfortunately... We are flat out of time. Got to go, got to get out of here. Do want to say thanks to both of our guests today. Ducks Unlimited's chief biologist, Tom Mormon, also Sportsman's Alliance, Brian Lynn. We will do it again, same time, same place next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors as well. And thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Here's a little James McMurtry taking us on home. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors.
1: this swear it's not the one. Where'd
2: you hide the body? Where'd you get the gun? Where'd you hide the body? Where'd you get the gun?